0: Okay, so we're back on track chronologically in the book of Acts. Uh, Now that we've wrapped up chapter 16, we're now moving into chapter 17, and we're going to endeavor to cover all of chapter 17 in one go, kind of. We're going to examine Paul's speech to the Athenians next week. But uh, today's sermon is called A Tale of Three Cities, and I've never read Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, even though it is the the second largest, second best-selling, single-volume novel of all time. which is kind of a mind-blowing stat. I've never read it. Any of you, have any of you read A Tale of Two Cities? Sharon and Tara? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what it's about. It's a tale about two cities. Yeah, that's what it's about. That's only the first of many lame pastor jokes this morning, by the way. But despite the title of the sermon, you probably noticed there's no pictures of cities on the title slides. Instead, it's Seeds. It's a mixing of metaphors, cities and seeds, which is generally a bad thing for writers and speakers to do. It's what Angie did the other day coming back from the city. She was telling me about how silly a particular C-Prep student was being, and she said that the little girl was giggling like a school mouse, which isn't a thing. It's not a thing, Any giggling like a school. It's either quiet as a church mouse or giggling like a school girl, which wouldn't even be a metaphor in this case. It was literally just a girl, a school girl giggling. So, here I am behaving like Angie and mixing my metaphors, <laughs> giggling like a school mouse. But there's a point to my mixing. Today's sermon is about cities, and it is about seeds, but really, it's about people. So allow me to explain. First, seeds. It's a reference to a parable that Jesus teaches in Luke 8, pretty famous one. One of the very few parables where Jesus actually goes ahead and explains what his teaching means. He doesn't do that very often, but the disciples are like, what did you mean by all that seed talk? So he explains. Um, he tells of a farmer sowing his seeds. Some seeds land on a path where they are trampled on and gobbled up by the birds of the air. And just as some people who hear Jesus' words are trampled on and gobbled up by the words that never save them. Because they don't, they don't have a chance to accept the seeds. Some are like seeds that land on rocky soil because they receive the words of Jesus, but they have no place for the roots to go down. And when the sun dries them up, they wither away and die because their roots don't go down deep. Some people are like that. Before we even have a chance to get our roots planted in the word, we're gone. Others are like seeds among weeds and thorns who are choked out by life's pleasures and life's sufferings and just the distractions of life. So there's goodness and truth there, but it's all bogged down by the weeds of living in North America in 2018. And finally, some are like seeds in good soil, who hear the word, accept it, are saved by it, and then spread the crop and flourish and grow and, and spread it to others. So the whole thing is a parable about different reactions to the same message, the same kind of seed, same gospel message, accepted in different ways or rejected in different ways. So that's the seed part. The second part is cities. In Acts 17, we have stories of Paul bringing the same gospel message, so the same seeds, out from the Macedonian city of Philippi to two other Macedonian cities, Thessalonica and Berea, and then heading down to Athens. So those are the three cities, Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. I always think it's hilarious how the slightest geographical difference can create enormous boundaries to people. Like, for the... 2% of the world who's ever heard of Calgary and Edmonton and I'm guessing in the entire global population not many people know about those cities at all. But for those who do know it, they probably assume that they are essentially identical. They're both from a very similar geographical location, um the same part of the world, and this would be entirely inaccurate. They are not the same cities. While both cities are known for their appreciation of hard work, of art, of fossil fuels, and of natural beauty, Edmonton is more of a blue-collar Industrial city. Well, Calgary's more of a white collar corporate city. Calgary's more upwardly mobile. Edmonton's more laid back, generally speaking. Calgarians cheer for their filthy pagan sports teams, while Edmontonians know the holy blessings of both glorious dynastic victory and patient, long suffering endurance, thanks to their sports teams, which God Himself cheers for in His eternal wisdom. So, anyway. To someone from Thailand, for example, Calgary and Edmonton would seem virtually identical. To someone from Red Deer, Red Deer, however, that would not be the case. They, there are big differences. One of my favorite ongoing jokes, uh, inside jokes between me and my friend Jackson, is how much we hate Barhead. Just, I'm glad Lisa and Yella aren't here. Not so that they hear me trash their city, their town, but just because they're from Barhead and they're not welcome here. Just kidding. That was too far. Um, It's a joke, of course. I'm technically employed in Barhead. Pemina Hills is centered in Barhead. And every time I go there, um, their restaurants are also superior to Westlock restaurants, generally, I think. Um, So I I never mind spending a day in Barhead. It's just a joke. But because I grew up on this side of the Fifth Meridian, I am decidedly anti-Barhead. Bar plus head is unpleasant. I am decidedly anti-Barhead when it comes to nonsensical geographical biases. I'm sure there are good people there somewhere. But on general principle, I want nothing to do with Barhead. So Edmonton and Calgary, Barhead and Westlock. Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. Every city is different. They have their own cultures, their own histories, their own identities. That's why I mix the metaphors of cities and seeds. Each city reacts differently to the gospel message brought to them by Saul or Paul, Silas, and Timothy. The same seed is brought to each, and they respond very differently. Today's sermon is about cities, and it's about seeds, but really it's about people. So in this tale of three cities, we will look at what we can learn from the responses at each location. Will these cities respond to these seeds of the gospel message like the cursed Calgarians or blasphemous Barhedians and reject the gospel message, like seeds thrown on rocky or thorny soil? Or will they be like blessed Edmontonians or sanctified Clydians and accept Jesus like seeds in rich, fertile, prosperous soil? Am I taking that too far? <laughs> Barhead, if you're listening to this on the podcast, I apologize for any and all slander. Any, let's read most of Acts 17 and find out in this tale of two th- cities how they will respond to the seeds brought to them. We're going to begin with mm, verses 1 to 9 of chapter 17. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So that's city number one, the city of Thessalonica. So here's the big map omissions for you to get a sense of the geography. Here's Philippi, where they had been. That's where, the, uh, that's where Lydia was. That's where the demon-possessed girl had been saved. That's where Paul and Silas had been thrown in prison. The earthquake came, and miraculously they were released. That was in Philippi and so then they head down to Thessalonica. Um, On this, which is Paul's second missions trip, he enters Europe via Philippi, but he had to leave for reasons that are very similar to his stay in Thessalonica. In both places, Philippi and Thessalonica, his message was accepted at first by a small but loyal contingent with a special shout-out to strong, determined women. Luke makes sure to mention Lydia in particular and the other women at the riverside. And here in, what is it, verse 4, he mentions a bunch of prominent women who accept the gospel message. But in both places, the locals were roused up against the apostles. In Philippi, some Gentiles got upset because Paul removed their dehumanizing means of getting rich, filthy rich, by exploiting a, a, a possessed slave girl. And Paul releases her from that, and so they have him thrown in prison. In Thessalonica, it's some Jews who get upset because they were just straight-up jealous of Paul's popularity. They didn't like that. And so in both places, Paul has to flee, and it grieves him deeply to do so. Through Lydia and Jason, Lydia and Philippi and Jason in Thessalonica, Paul made friends who showed tremendous hospitality and care, and those houses of Lydia and Jason become um, ground zero for the churches that Paul plants. And it grieves him deeply to leave those places. They're just babies. They're just infant Christians, and he longs to nourish them and protect them. The Philippians would always have a special place in Paul's heart. He mentions in Philippians 4.16 how they were a special support to him, sending money and encouragement to him when he's in prison. So he loved the Philippians, and it hurt him to leave them. But he also loves the Thessalonians, and as we'll see, the Bereans as well. After successfully sowing and reaping a crop of faithful followers of Jesus and raising up a new garden of believers in each city, it's tremendously difficult for Paul to be forced away from them. There was a lot at stake for these newly planted seedling Christians. The Thessalonian believers in particular were at risk because, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, nine, most of the believers in that city were converted from paganism, like They didn't come from Judaism where they had at least a foundation to fall back on. If they moved away from Jesus, they they moved at least towards God. But the the Thessalonians, they came from a total pantheistic, worshipping the gods of the Greek and Roman gods. It was a lot more treacherous for them. And Paul leaving them now left them vulnerable to apostasy, which means turning from the faith, and to persecution. When you read the letters that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, you get, it's all about endurance and about the end times. That there is hope even though you're suffering greatly. That's what the letters to the Thessalonians are about. So these new baby Christians are vulnerable. And Paul grieves him to leave them. Paul was worried that the seeds he had sown in Thessalonica would land on rocky soil. That they would accept the gospel joyfully one moment and the next moment, as soon as persecution comes and they don't have strong roots, they would wither up and die. They would abandon it because of the trials that arise in Jesus' name. Certainly, the jealous Jews in Thessalonica were behaving like crows and mice in Jesus' parable, trying to snatch away the seeds before they could ever take root. They didn't just snatch up the seeds, they actively chased away the farmer who was spreading the seeds. They chased, they forced Paul to flee. The allegations against Paul were very serious. Among the most serious you could levy against someone in the Roman world, that they were promoting a new king, a different king than Caesar. That they were trying to supplant Rome with this Galilean Jesus. Thankfully, the city officials were more level-headed in Thessalonica than they were in Philippi. In Philippi, they just threw them in jail, tortured them, and threw them in jail without a trial. Thessalonica, probably because they couldn't actually find Paul and Silas, and also because the charges were weak to begin with, they're they, they were released from that. Jason we just all of a sudden meet here, is released from prison rather than tortured and beaten for his faith, which is nice. That's always that's always nice when our heroes aren't mutilated for their love of Jesus. But for now, that's the first city, Thessalonica, and its dominant identity, the way it accepted the seeds, primarily how it would be identified is is the rocky soil, that there were crows there who tried to snatch the seeds away, and the seeds that did touch down, We're at risk of withering up and dying. So that's Thessalonica. Let's look at the second city, the city of Berea, which, by the way, just down the road. There's Berea. Uh, So let's read about Berea, verses 10 to 15. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed and also, as did also a number of prominent Greek women, there's the shout out to the women again, and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Berea. Berea is not a famous city not really anyway. There are no letters written by Paul to this city that we know of, as he had written to other Macedonian cities, Thessalonica and Philippi. There's no letter to the Bereans. So Berea's not quite as famous. Berea was about 40 miles off the the main road to Rome. Uh, so if you go f- to Rome from Thessalonica, you went kind of straight west. Berea was more southwest. It was off the beaten path. Even ancient Roman um, historians called it just this City in the middle of nowhere, off the beaten path. Cicero said that. And that's kind of demeaning. Furthermore, it had a reputation of being a sort of resort town for the wealthy people of Thessalonica. That's where the wealthy Thessalonians would go to to relax and party. But it was also the place where if you were accused of a crime and needed to flee from Thessalonica, you went to Berea to wait it out. If you were afraid you would be exiled from Thessalonica, you went to Berea to, to wait it out. So in all this Berea... It was kind of an afterthought of a community. It's a place he went to in order to escape, in a variety of definitions of that word, to escape for pleasure or to escape for your life. Um, it wasn't a place he went to for thriving and building a life. It was kind of like Drumheller without the dinosaurs. Drumheller is far off the main highway, way off Highway Two, and it was it's popular with tourists and convicts. There's a prison in Drumheller. There are also many tourists who go there. So Bree was kind of like. Drumheller. Drumheller has a great reputation. I love Drumheller. But it was kind of like that. Just imagine that. And so the question is, what would the seeds that Paul sows in Berea be like in this nowhere town with sort of a random population of, of fleers? Well, as we saw in the passage, the seeds were received exceptionally well. Berea was fertile ground indeed. And that was because of what Luke declares as the more noble character of the Bereans than the Thessalonians. Thessalonians sorry. There's a couple of reasons why they were more noble. First of all, partly because the Bereans themselves weren't the ones who forced Paul to flee. Just as he had encountered when he was in Lystra, people followed him, in this case, 40 miles. When, when he was in, in Lystra, people followed him almost 100 miles from Antioch and Iconium to Lystra just to, to throw tomatoes at him and to disparage him. Here they follow him from, Th- from Thessalonica to Berea to do the same thing. They hate him so much, they, they seek him down to discredit him in other cities. It's a thing that happens to Paul fairly regularly. So it's not the Bereans who get him, want him gone. It's the Thessalonican, Thessalonians who come to Berea and stir up dissension that do that. But that's not what made the Bereans nobler than the Thessalonians. It was, instead, the faithful, diligent, humble studiousness of the Bereans that earned them Luke's praise. They accepted faith like a child, which is what Jesus tells us to do. They accepted their faith like a child, but they worked at their faith like grown men and women. They accepted it like children, but they didn't leave it there. They they did their homework. They They looked into what Paul was saying, which is what the thing that Dale, that's what's good about these things is it makes you actually examine scripture and take it seriously. And that's, Good. That's always good. They accepted faith like children, but worked at it like grown men and women. They set such a beautiful example that every other Bible (laughs) study... There's many, many Bible study groups throughout North America that that think they're incredibly clever to incorporate the name of Berea into their Bible study title somewhere, which is why you get the Berean Brotherhoods, and you get Bible babes of Berea. (laughs) I've never heard of that, but I assume there's something... Some equally cheesy way of identifying with Berea when it comes to studying, studying the Bible. And that goes back to Acts 17, 11-12. The believer, believers in Berea were like seeds that fell in fertile soil, but then actively researched their soil conditions to maximize their growth potential in that soil they found themselves in. It wasn't enough just to grow and sprout. They, they firmed themselves up in their belief. They worked at it. They took their faith seriously and worked to reconcile what they already knew about God with these new truths presented by Paul, which is a healthy practice for any believer to do. When you're encountered with something new, check it with the Scriptures. They bridged the Old and the New Testament before there even was such a thing as Old and New Testament. There was just the Scriptures, which is what we call the Old Testament. So they bridged the Old and New. They studied to, to reconcile the two before they even existed as a thing. When the, when the new truths did line up with the old truths, then they committed fully to Jesus, their new master and their new redeemer. When they saw how it worked, how it lined up, and they studied to make sure it did, then they, they sold everything and, and committed fully to Jesus. So, so much for a bad reception from this out of the way town with a mixed reputation. They are heroes. To this day, to call yourself a Berean means that you take scripture seriously. However, thanks to those malicious rabble-rousers from Thessalonica, the Berean believers are forced to whisk Paul away south out of Macedonia and into Achaia, which is what we call modern-day Greece, where the chief city then and now was Athens. The best Paul could do was instruct his new Berean friends who were whisking him away, urging them, to go back to Silas and Timothy and tell them to water the seeds that they had freshly planted and to rejoin them in Achaia as soon as possible. So let's read about the Athenians. We're going to read verses 16 to 21. We're going to skip Paul's sermon. We're going to to study that next week. And then we're going to read verses 33 and 34. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Pause here. They actually believed that Paul was talking about two separate gods, that Jesus, whose name means... Healing and salvation was one God. And Anastasis, which is the title of that song we sang earlier, was the other God. That means resurrection. So they thought health and resurrection were these two new gods that Paul was bringing to this marketplace of gods. Which is interesting. They thought resurrection was a god. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Uh, Then Paul stands up in the Areopagus, delivers this great, great sermon. Talk about it next week. And skip to verse 33. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, whose name, by the way, means heifer. How do you like that to be your name? Um a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Lovely little baby heifer. (laughs) Anyway, heading down to Athens by coast, Paul would have been greeted by this succession of beautiful, magnificent, architectural wonders totally devoted to idolatry. The first he would have come across is the the temple to Poseidon, which was right on the coast, the, the port of Athens. Beautiful, gleaming white, priest's, visible in the noonday sun, dressed all in, in lavish white robes. That's the first thing he would have seen, and it would have, it would have grieved him. Next, he would have seen the Parthenon, shining high on the, Areopi- or the Acropolis, which every Greek city had at its high point had an Acropolis, which was basically a meeting and debating place. The Parthenon stands still, and it is breathtakingly beautiful still. Um, people from all over the world to see wonders like this. But when Paul saw wonders like this, he didn't see beauty, he didn't see wonder, he saw idolatry. And it grieved him. In many ways, ancient Athens, I've been trying to compare these cities with places that we're familiar with. Um, In many ways, ancient Athens was equivalent to modern-day New York City, I think. Both are, their respective eras, undeniable global centers for art, politics, literature, culture, and philosophical dissemination. When you think of cultural headquarters of the West, I mean, that's why 9-11 happened. Because the radical extremists view New York City as ground zero for the West. That's why they attacked New York City. New York City, what is, is our cultural radiating point. Media, art, it all comes back to New York City. And that, that's, that's how it was for Athens. To quote, F.F. Bruce, he said, Athens represented the highest level of culture attained in classical antiquity. The sculpture, literature, and oratory, that means the fancy speeches of Athens, in the 5th and 4th century before Jesus, have indeed never been surpassed. In philosophy, too, she occupied the leading place being the native city of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. In all these fields, Athens retained unchallenged prestige, and her political glory as the cradle of democracy was not. Completely dimmed either. So, wow, politics, art, philosophy, Athens was the center of all of that. Sounds a lot like New York City, right? Or maybe LA, maybe, I don't know, London, maybe all of those combined was Athens. Well, like New York City, all of that cultural power and prestige was wrapped around and predicated by one thing idolatry. In New York City, the idols are fame and leisure and money, propagated by Wall Street and and the media that headquarters in New York. The idols of our day are less obvious than Poseidon or Athena or Zeus. Um, They're less obvious, but they're no less misguiding, no less damaging than those idols. Paul in Athens is very much like the sower of seeds among the weeds and thorns. His beautiful message was choked out by the the competing ideas of the day. It was idolatry that propelled Paul into his sermon. He looks around and sees there's idols everywhere. He actually makes mention of the idols in his sermon. He had seen these monumental architectural tributes to false religion as he approached the great city of Athens and everywhere he went. He, He spent a lot of time in the marketplace, and in the marketplace were these giant square pillars, and at the top of those pillars, they were called herms, these pillars, because at the top of each pillar was a bust of Hermes, who at one point Paul had been mistaken for as a god. They, they called him Hermes. And everywhere he goes, he sees Hermes. This There's gods and idolatry everywhere. He, he couldn't escape it. He was surrounded by it at all times. But in the end, it wasn't Athena or Hermes or Zeus who choked out the seeds of faith. Those idols were ultimately as powerless to dissuade faith as they were to send rain or to conquer rival city-states. In the end, the real gods of Athens proved themselves to be the exact opposite of the Bereans. Whereas the Bereans were philosophically humble and willing to lay aside their feeble human perceptions of truth in order to pursue truth incarnate, the person of Jesus Christ, the Athenians did the opposite. They arrogantly clung to the incomplete beliefs. The Athenians didn't worship Athena, for whom their city is named, the Athenians worshipped being Athenians and all the prestige and glory and philosophy and culture that came with being Athenian. They worshipped themselves. They valued their reputation as being more sophisticated than anyone else in reason and in thought. They basked in the glow of their radiant philosophy. As Luke says somewhat dismissively in verse 21, all the Athenians cared about or ideas. That's all they did. Chat about ideas, talk about ideas, meet together at the market to talk ideas, go off to the Acropolis to talk about ideas, and then when you got home with your wife, you talked about ideas some more. Ideas, 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 ideas. Not truth. Ideas. Just ideas. And does that sound familiar? I think that sounds an awful lot like our world today. We don't worship uppercase truth, which is what Jesus is. We worship our perception of truth, Lowercase t, truth. Our political views, our philosophical outlooks, our personal experiences dominate our identities. We dismiss anyone who's on a different side of the left, right, liberal, conservative spectrum as us, immediately. We dis- we declare that their voice is not worth hearing. In Acts 17, it's the Epicureans versus the Stoics. Today, it's the NDP versus the UCP. We demand to be heard, but we don't really have any idea what we're talking about. That's not just describing Athenian culture 2,000 years ago. That's describing Facebook today, I think. We worship the little kingdoms we insulate ourselves in. Since we believe we are gods that everyone else needs to respect and listen to and serve, why would we need to respect and serve and listen to others? We are the gods. You should be listening to me. Why would we need to respect, serve, and listen to a supreme god Who is the way, truth, and life above each of us little wooden idols that we make ourselves out to be? Does that sound like our world today? Frankly, a lot of the times it sounds like our church today, too. The Stoics, they were philosophers who believed in equal rights, human rationality, and individual self sufficiency. Now, parts of that are very good. They went very extreme with it. They they were all about keeping a stiff upper lip and keeping on, keeping on. We still call people Stoic today. When they face hardship like this, bring it on. That You're being stoic. The Epicureans, on the other hand, believed in pleasure as the ultimate goal for humanity. They believed in freedom from pain and the necessity of passion and tranquility. In other words, the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So basically, if you combine stoic and Epicurean philosophy, you would have 21st century North American philosophy. We are all of these things. This is what North America is. It's all of those things. The Epicureans and Stoics are us. This is our worldview. This is not some ancient Athenian done away with thing that Paul is combating. He's combating us. This is us. So it's no surprise that just as the average North American has absolutely no desire to actually sacrifice their ignorant self-worship and fully submit to Jesus as their master and king, neither did the philosophers in Acts 17 they dismissed Paul as well, just like our world does. The idea of turning your life completely over to Jesus is so easily dismissed in our post-Christian world. And I'll talk about what that means, post-Christian, next week. It's a big deal. It does us well to understand it. Just as our world dismisses Jesus, their world dismisses Jesus because they worship their ideas. They worship themselves. In fact, in verse 18, the Greek word translated as babbler in the English is the Greek word spermalogos. That's right, you giggling school mice. Sperm is in that word, yes, and it's the same root because sperm means seed. The Greek word for seed is sperma. The Greek philosophers are derisively calling Paul a seed reasoner, which is what you call this like philosophical hack. The, the idea is he's like a bird in the marketplace who sees all these seeds and just pecks at them and pecks at them and samples them Never really commits to one thing and then poops out a bunch of nonsense afterwards. That's exact, that's what they're calling him, a seed reasoner. He doesn't dabble in, in whole big healthy truth. He dabbles in this seed truth and then barfs out something gross afterwards. They dismiss his truth as tiny nonsense from an idiotic philosophy hack. That's what they call him. I wish they would have kept Spermologos in the, in the English translation. I wish that was a word we still used. It's a pretty powerful word. In other words, in the history of men who could identify as the farmer in Jesus' parable, spreading seeds of truth wherever he goes, Paul would be chief among them, wouldn't he? He is a chief seed spreader. But because they worship their own ignorant and self-obsessed concepts of truth, they dismiss him as a mere seed reasoner. Not a truth-bearing seed scatterer, but a lowly seed reasoner. And then, once you do that, in creep the weeds of vanity and ignorance and arrogance and self-worship, and all hope for faith to bloom in the hearts of these Athenian men is choked to death. All hope for the gospel to bloom in the hearts of North American men and women gets choked to death for the same reason. Well, not all hope. After all, God is the ultimate sower of seeds of truth, and then he goes to work on some people's hearts with a pretty big weed whacker. To get rid of those weeds, chapter seventeen concludes with small but meaningful victories. Some follow Paul, truly really means that they commit to following Jesus of all the socially elite philosophers who engaged in debate with Paul, some of them dismissed him immediately in in Athens, there was a creed about resurrection that as blood soaks into the ground, so too is there no resurrection of men, or some there was some phrase that I read it was like one of the mottoes of Athens. So resurrection was completely dismissed immediately. And many of these philosophers did just that. But some are curious to learn more. And one of these elite Areopagus members is Dionysus. He believes. He becomes a disciple. As does a woman named Damaris, heifer. <laughs> but that, that just proves, I think, that for every arrogant meeting of hard-headed men, there are often women waiting in the margins to demonstrate real faithfulness because this debate happening at the Areopagus, women were barred from that. That was a men-only thing. But, I mean, it would be roped off and they could hear what was happening. And from the margins, they commit. It's often true of women in in male-dominated societies. So Paul, he was somewhat ineffective in Athens, especially compared to the Macedonian cities that he had evangelized earlier, which would mean it would be shocking to him find out that 2,000 years later, Athens, as a modern Greek city, has erected a plaque on the steps leading up to the very place where he delivered his sermon. And on that plaque are all the words of his sermon honoring him for Acts 17. And the road that runs past that place where he gave that sermon is called St. Paul Way, named in his honor. And on that road is a flagpole that every year at Easter gets lowered to half-mast in honor of Jesus and raised back to celebrate his resurrection. So short-term, small, little victories. Long-term, sometimes it takes a long time for seeds to germinate. It took decades and centuries in this case. But the seeds that Paul planted are still blooming and spreading today. And indeed, this was a sermon about seeds, a sermon about cities, but it was really a sermon about people. Like Barhead and Westlock, every city is different. Just like Lanarka, Berea, and Athens, every city is different. And in our passage, each of those three cities reacted differently to the seeds of truth brought to them by Paul. Some were skeptical. Others were enraged. Some were humble and studious and accepted truth, while others were arrogant and dismissive and rejected truth. We will get those same reactions today. Jesus' parable still holds true for us. But no matter the city's reaction, there were people in each of these cities who became disciples of Jesus. Men and women with names like Lydia, Jason, Sopater, who is a Berean that we will meet later in Acts, who was, he became convert in this story. Lydia, Jason, Sopater, Dionysus, and Damaris. Real people with real names who became real followers of Jesus. These are the seeds who landed in fertile soil and grew and spread and flourished. And so that is my hope for each of us. Watch out for the weeds of self-idolatry and arrogant thinking. Beware of antagonizing birds who seek to devour you and rip you out by the roots. And more than anything, my brother and sister seeds continue to find good soil in order to transform the city of Clyde for the sake of the kingdom. It's about seeds, and it's about cities, but it's really about people. And that, Angie Lance, is how you mix your metaphors. Giggling like school mice. (laughs) So good. I asked you yesterday, hey, Angela, what was it that you said? I forget. It's, it's killing me. I thought it was so funny. It's like, why? Why do you want to know? As I'm writing a sermon. Well Anyway, I love you, Angie. Let's pray. Father, thank you for spreading seeds here in Clyde and Westlock and wherever we're from. And thank you that you patiently water us as seeds and take care of us and grow us up. And we are thankful to be seeds in, your, in the garden of your kingdom. But, Father, um, in this story, we see different reactions, different people to your gospel, to your good news. And we know that as we bring your good news out into the world, we're going to see those same reactions. We're going to see people deny you, even though it grieves us. We're going to see people antagonize us, even though it grieves us. And we're going to see people accept and love you. And we celebrate that. And, again, it's just an honor and a privilege to be those seeds who are growing in you. Help us to take the honor of being your seeds and spread and flourish to other places for your kingdom. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Giggling like school mice. (laughs) So good. Again, I apologize for any of you who were offended by my um, attacks on Barhead.